Hello, welcome to another episode of the Hands of Protocol Weekly. I'm your host, Dart Tripford, and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Scott Dykstra. Uh, Scott is building Space and Time, uh, which is the decentralized data warehouse for Web3, uh, enabling the future of a trustless web. Uh, how you going, Scott? Hey, great. Appreciate you having me on. Um, so just for all of our guests here that don't know exactly what you are building with Space and Time, would you be able to give us the quick sort of explain like I'm five version? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know if anything in Web3 can be explained by like your five, but I'll do my best. Space and Time is a decentralized data warehouse. What that really means is it's a massive, massive decentralized network of computers that are working to process very, very large workloads of a lot of data, uh, a lot of data across a ton of different blockchains. Space and Time captures data from all the major blockchains and joins that with our customers' application-generated data to do complex analytics in a secure, cryptographically guaranteed way. Now, for, for the five-year-old and all of us, cryptographically guaranteed just means we actually prove what we do. We prove that the results coming back from our database or our data warehouse are accurate, verifiable, tamper-proof, and ultimately connect that data warehouse back to our customers' smart contracts on major chains. Yeah, nice. No, so in, in sort of the 10-second version, what, what's the benefit there of having those data warehouses decentralized? I think the, the idea of trustless off-chain compute is becoming more prevalent and more required. So decentralization by itself doesn't necessarily drive a lot of business value. The community loves it, but what it's more about is trustless, proven systems that actually prove the work that they do and therefore create a tamper-proof environment. So decentralized, really in our, in our case, doesn't just mean community operated or user-owned, it also means trustless. Yeah, and is that what sort of convinced you to build on Web3 was that sort of trustless element or what sort of dragged you over uh, to building on this side? You got me there. I mean, actually it was decentralization, not trust. <laughs> so, I mean, this idea of systems that are owned by, or I should say networks that are operated, owned and operated by the community where we return the power back to the constituents that and the users of these networks. Like the idea of a blockchain as a, a, a group of nodes and validators all over the world, operated by users all over the world. And then also the economic incentives are, you know, uh, not really owned by one centralized party. That's pretty cool. Data warehousing historically, and when I say historically, I actually mean about 30 or 40 years of data warehousing has been all about centralization. And that's, that's the name of the game. Data warehousing are these massive monolithic uh, systems that process tens to hundreds of terabytes of data in a centralized way. The idea of a decentralized data data warehouse is counterintuitive to that, but really exciting. Yeah. Do you think that there's a bit of, I guess, from from your side of the table, a bit of resistance towards from sort of traditional clients towards transitioning from those centralized data warehouses to decentralized data warehouses? And then sort of what has to be done to sort of ease that transition? Yeah, great question. I think this, the, the transition from centralized data platforms in general is going to be challenging. Something we actually think about every day. How does the enterprise that's moving into Web3, that's moving into the world of decentralized blockchain systems, how do they get tens to hundreds of terabytes or even petabytes of data out of these large scale compute platforms that do analytics for the, for the Qantas airlines, for the 
for the Wells Fargo Bank, for the Facebooks and the Googles, and, and for the, you know, just the consumer systems we see every day, the Instagram. So the, how do we get all these, these tens to hundreds of terabytes out of these centralized systems and connect them to the blockchain? The only real answer I have for you right now, without giving away uh, tons of alpha <laughs> about the inner workings of space and time, which by the way, we will, we will get, be giving that alpha away over time as we, you know, get past beta and into mainnet. But the only answer I can give you right now is a load and check auditing system. Today, we've got all this data from, from Qantas Airlines in a centralized data warehouse. Big old compute platform with hundreds of terabytes of storage and enough compute to ask the really tough questions about Qantas's business. And now you want to build some kind of airline ticketing settlement system on the blockchain. Today, that settlement system lives in a big centralized enterprise data warehouse operated by Qantas. How do we get that data out and onto the blockchain? Well, one way we could do it is with space and time as a trustless intermediary. Load all that data into space and time and then perform a bunch of random audits back on the data to check. I'll stop there. If we go any further, it'll become an engineering session. One, one last slightly technical question, and I might catch myself out here, but I've had Brennan Lamy from Quill on the podcast last week, and one thing that they talk about a lot at Quill is the value of data composability. So if you guys are doing decentralized data warehousing, does it create a lot of value for your enterprises like your Qantas or your Wells Fargo's, as you've mentioned, to be able to cross-check their data against a wider, broader lake of data that might not necessarily be theirs? Is that something that space and time would enable? Great, great question. And first of all, I'll say, you know, big fans of Brennan and the team at Quill and very excited and bullish about what they're building. I think they've got a very forward-thinking mindset and that's a great team. Space and Time actually invested in Quill and we're working on a partnership with Quill as well because we just think what they're building is great. I think Brennan is leading the charge on data composability. That's not really a focus of space and time right now. The future, maybe, you know, Brennan and I will work together on something really cool around data composability. And the reason it's not yet a priority is because let's, let's go back to this terrible example of Qantas Airlines. Like, do the airlines want a single data model that they can share between them? The answer, ironically, is yes, only in certain circumstances. A single reporting system to report to the world where air traffic is and what the current status of these flights are and what the current number of available tickets are and maybe the prices of those tickets, but that's it. Google Flights wants to be able to see Qantas airline ticketing data. So I could see a world where a composable data sets powered or, or secured by the blockchain connect all this public data together, but that public data is such is the tip of the iceberg. It's such a small amount of the actual data that Qantas processes and does analytics on in their centralized analytic black box. So you'd you'd be more the the trusted, not intermediary, but sort of the trusted store of value for their private proprietary data. Yeah, and I think like if we want to get even deeper down this terrible analogy, you could think about an idea of like airline tickets as NFTs on the blockchain. And what if an airline said, we're going to, you're going to spend USDC to buy a ticket through our DAP and we're going to give you an NFT minted to your wallet that represents your place on a plane, your, your seat on the plane. Well, settlement would occur on chain and that 
you know, the smart contract operated by Qantas would get paid for the ticket you purchased and the NFT that you bought. But what's the next step for Qantas? The next step is understanding, asking bigger questions, deeper questions about their business. How much should our ticket cost? What hmm. should an NFT, what should, how, what should we price these NFTs on OpenSea that we're selling, <laughs> right? Uh, who, who is buying our tickets? What are the, what's the profile of these wallets that are purchasing flights on the blockchain? How much should we price them? Where, where, where are those people going? What kind of flights are they purchasing most? In what, uh, you know, what countries are these flights going to that we're selling best? There are all these questions you can ask about your business and that data will not be on the blockchain. Why? The only thing that's on the blockchain would be just my wallet purchased this NFT. Only data about the transfer of value and nothing else, not the orders of magnitude more data that they need to answer the tougher questions. Okay, yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. It, really, really comprehensive protocol as well. I'm super, super impressed. I'll give both of us a quick chance to sort of escape uh, this Qantas analogy for a second. Obviously, Thank a lot God. of... <laughs> I, I, I can't promise that I won't be coming back to it, though. We'll come um, back to it. <laughs> um, the, the whole space that you're working in at the moment and a lot of the stuff that we've discussed is quite esoteric. Um, and quite specific. So how is it that you came into this whole data warehousing space? What was sort of your experience before space and time? Because uh, I, I, I had a quick look and it looks like you've actually been in the space for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, the data warehousing industry as a whole is quickly growing to a trillion dollars. Today, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. And if you don't believe me, just look at Snowflake and then think about all the Snowflake competitors that are all generating tens of billions of dollars of revenue. The Oracles of the world, the Microsoft databases of the world. I'm not talking about Oracle as in blockchain Oracle. I mean, Oracle, the enterprise. Uh, it's a massive market. So yes, esoteric in that it's a market only applicable to certain uh, businesses. It's a very business to business market, but it's massive. One of the largest markets out there today. Um, now I will say this idea of like a, a way to process and store data is really what a data, what's really what a blockchain is. What is, what is a blockchain? A blockchain is a database that's tamper proof with one table, a decentralized ledger. And that table is data about which wallets have transferred which tokens between themselves and between smart contracts. And if you think about the, the blockchain as a database with one table, a data warehouse is a massive database with a crap ton of tables, many, many, many tables, right? And much larger tables and much larger volumes of data. So our idea was just simply, how do we kind of bring blockchain tamper-proofing, bring that, uh, cryptographically guaranteed ledger and that kind of technology and those concepts, which are so fascinating and forward thinking, bring that to data warehousing, which is to be honest, like not that forward thinking of an industry in general. Yeah. And so what was it that sort of triggered the beginning of the space and time story then? How did, how did you come across your co-founder, uh, Nate Holiday and sort of what, what got all that kicked off? Yeah, Nate, Nate Holiday was a, is a um, prominent executive at a large $2 billion data warehousing company called Teradata, um, which does data warehousing in the cloud and on-premise for enterprises. Him and I have worked together for about eight or nine years. Oh, we've been good friends for a long time. 
Nate uh, was a strategic advisor to the CEO of Chainlink, Sergey Nazarov. And, uh, you know, through, through that relationship with Chainlink and working with Chainlink, it was an opportunity to look at more, more and more kind of architectures for decentralized systems. And uh, the blockchain, sorry, the prevalent blockchain architectures that we, like the EVM chains, for example, like uh, are fascinating. And we're still seeing more and more new blockchain architectures pop up. And also more and more trustless off-chain systems pop up. Chainlink is one of them. Chainlink is a trustless off-chain compute network, a decentralized network of user-operated nodes all over the world that is not a blockchain. It's a decentralized, trustless, off-chain compute system that is interoperable with all the major chains. That got us thinking, wow, what would a decentralized data warehouse look like? And how can we take some of these primitives from major blockchain architectures and primitives from trustless off-chain compute networks like Chainlink and, and bridge some of those um, concepts into a data warehouse while still kind of offering you know, the same SLAs, the same performance that we see in centralized systems. Yeah, one, one thing we see a lot in Web3 is that you get a lot of people who have really great ideas like you've obviously had looking at Chainlink and then sort of converting that into the space and time idea. Uh, but even even in the Web2 context, a lot of these ideas don't get converted into actual execution, actual products. And that's a challenge that is sort of heightened in Web3 because you have to deal with a lot of cryptography in a lot of cases if you're on-chain, a lot of other complex problems. How did you sort of go from having that idea to converting it into a product? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an ambitious challenge. It's going to take a very large engineering team across a, a bunch of different domains, to your point, including cryptography and building a novel cryptographic protocol to prove what the data warehouse does, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, experts, you know, PhD level uh, experts in, in the merging of transactional processing and analytic processing together in a decentralized network. Um, DAP developers that understand the best way to expose a bunch of APIs to the world so developers can quickly build on space and time. Blockchain indexing experts that understand how to get extract data from all the major chains in real time and clean that up and make that available in our data warehouse to be queried. There's a lot of like ambitious components that have to come together. It's, 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 it's a real challenge. But what we found is that uh, from a recruiting standpoint, the, the better the engineer, the more they appreciate these ambitious challenges. Sometimes by building something that people say can't be done or say, well, you have to be, you know, a PhD level cryptographer to understand this. That's how you get the PhD cryptographers on your team. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's a really good way of looking at it as well. And it, I guess it forces you to be more ambitious in the way that you look at things as well. So on that note, what is sort of the most ambitious view of space and time that you're pitching these potential hires to bring those PhD level cryptographers on board? Sure. I, I think the pitch isn't just specific to hires. It's also to the investors that we've been so great, so, you know, so blessed with the support that we've gotten from, from some backers like, like, uh, you know, like, like DCG or framework on our first round that understood how ambitious this project was. So it's not just to the people we're hiring. It's, it's also to the market as a whole, but, uh, probably the most ambitious part of this or the, 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 the vision here is using proof of SQL to actually connect directly to connect, connect the results of analytics directly to smart contracts on chain, which ultimately opens up a whole new set of use cases for smart contracts. Imagine your smart contract can query 
the guaranteed tamper-proof off-chain database or off-chain data warehouse, then what you could do is you could ask much more complex questions inside of your smart contract. You could build much more complex business logic inside of your smart contract, and you could put the whole world's business logic in your smart contracts. Like today, all of the world's business logic runs on applications and data warehouses, primarily in the cloud or banking mainframes. For us to move all of that business logic that runs, here we go, Qantas Airlines <laughs> into a smart contract, like we're gonna need a massive amount of compute, a massive amount of data, but more importantly, we're gonna need to prove that. We're gonna need some kind of proof that that work that we do to run, to sell a ticket from Qantas Airlines as an NFT, that NFT actually translates to a real seat on a real plane from Qantas Airlines. All I'm simply saying is proof of SQL is an ambitious project. It's this, it's this project where we're building a novel cryptographic protocol into the data warehouse. So the data warehouse generates a query result, answers a question, and a proof of that answer, a proof of the answer to that question ultimately, so we can provide that, the answer of that question to a smart contract. So a smart contract then, with space and time in the, in the very near future, we're talking like Q1, 2023, like very, very soon, we'll be able to essentially ask a question, query data off chain, uh, which is opening up a whole new set of use cases for web three and therefore a whole new set of smart contracts. What do, what do you, what do you view as sort of the most, I'll use the word ambitious again, but the most ambitious and novel smart contract use cases that'll be uniquely enabled by uh, proof of SQL. Well, let's just, let's get tactical here. Let's talk about DeFi and gaming. Those are the two verticals that are hot right now that everyone's building in, that everyone's getting funded in, that uh, if, you know, if, if you talk to a hundred founders in web three, what, 40 will be in DeFi and 30 will be in gaming, right? Uh, so let's talk about gaming first. Blockchain-based gaming. They need to do fun, fun, new, exciting things with smart contracts and esports. I just won some esports tournament I should get paid in crypto on chain, right? And, but how does the gaming servers tell the esports smart contract to pay me because I won the game? Second, what if a bunch of fans stake on my esports team so when I win the game, we all get paid or something like that, right? How does the gaming servers tell a smart contract to pay out, not just me, but all my fans that are staking on me or something like that, right? Using that, that as an example. So joining this kind of on-chain data with all this off-chain video game generated data, all the in-game insights and activities that led to me winning, putting that together with like, okay, an on-chain payment to the winner is complex and requires a lot of cryptography. It requires us to prove that Scott actually won. Now let's move over to DeFi. New DeFi protocols are, are, are constantly getting more complex. Like <laughs> Uniswap version one versus Uniswap version three is night and day. Uniswap version one versus a decentralized perpetual options exchange on Ethereum is night and day. Three years ago, every DeFi protocol pretty much just ran on chain, fully on chain because they weren't, they weren't making really complex calculations and massive analytic processes to, to figure out the pricing of something like an option. Now, people are getting way more advanced. They're building all kinds of crazy stuff on chain that requires some complex calculations, calculations that are too complex or require too much data to do inside a smart contract. If you tried to do those calculations inside of a smart contract, you'd be paying like 100 grand of gas just to do one little calculation, right? just because they're so massive. 
or they require so much data that you, a smart contract simply cannot handle it. Smart contract has very little storage, very little memory. You can only handle simple little variables. So if you want to build something more complex, a new financial instrument on chain, you're probably going to need to attach a lot of data to that financial instrument. And that data has got to come from some trustless off-chain system like space and time. Yeah, very, 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 very well elaborated and very concise. Um, I'll give I'll give you the chance now to sort of, in brief, explain proof of SQL because it is, it is a very unique consensus mechanism, uh, and it's been mentioned a couple of times. So just a brief explanation for those following along at home. Sure, I'll I'll try to say high level. So you have an oracle layer that sits between the smart contract and the actual data warehouse cluster, the actual group of computers doing the processing and holding the data and doing the analytics. So between the smart contract and between the space and time data warehouse cluster is an Oracle layer, an Oracle network. When data comes into space and time, whether it's from the blockchains themselves or from, for example, a video game or from Qantas Airlines, you know, ticketing desk, wherever that data comes from, it comes in through the Oracle layer. And the Oracle layer keeps a little digital fingerprint of each data set, a little hash, a little uh, Peterson commitment, a fancy cryptographic hash that just, it's like a, a passport stamp that is a little, a little digital fingerprint of each data set. And then the data set gets pushed down through the Oracle layer to the actual data warehouse cluster. Next, a question comes in, a query. Smart contract says, hey, hey, space and time, give us a list of all tickets sold for this plane flight. Hey, space and time, give us a list of all winners who just won this video game esports tournament. Hey, space and time, give us a list of all the top liquidity pools by TVL. The data warehouse computes the query result, answers the question, and computes a cryptographic proof of the work that it did to answer that question. The Oracle layer validates that proof and says, looks good to me. They check that proof against that little, that fancy cryptographic hash, that, that digital fingerprint of the data that it's holding. So it's comparing its digital fingerprint of the data, the actual query result, and the proof. Those three items together, it can say, okay, looks good. It's essentially a, a snark proof, if you're familiar with snark cryptography. And then the Oracle network comes to consensus and says, all right, we've a number of us, a number of nodes have all verified this proof. We all agree it's accurate. Let's, let's provide the query result, the answer to the question back to the client, the smart contract, the Qantas Airlines ticketing desk, the video game server that requested it. Regardless of who requests it, Oracle layer proves it and gives them the result. So very, very, very elegant, which I guess also brings me to the question, right? So you have an idea for a way that you want to create the trustless web with space and time, right? And then to enable that, you need a consensus me mechanism like a proof of SQL. What's sort of the process from going from the idea to sort of mapping out how you're going to validate each item or each transaction? Does it, is, does it sort of begin with the consensus mechanism or does it begin with the idea or sort of what's the, what's the mapping process there? Great, great question. Yeah. I think, uh, maybe we'll take a quick step back, not to, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the technical differences between transactions and analytics, but actually it might be helpful for just a sec to answer this question in the database or data warehousing world. And by the way, a data warehouse, you could really think of as a massive database, a, re a single repository with, with a big compute cluster to do the work of a database, but at massive scale. There are transactional databases that store and retrieve transactions. Then there are analytic systems like data warehouses that aren't really so much about storing and retrieving transactions as they are asking big questions about data, like 
joining five tables together of 10 terabytes each and trying to understand how to better price a Qantas Airlines ticket. A transactional system simply puts a row of data in the database or on the blockchain saying that Scott purchased this ticket. And then can, we can retrieve that data saying, did, hey, show me, show me a list of tickets Scott has purchased. It's very transactional. Store the transaction, retrieve it. It's not asking a bigger question like, what's the likelihood of people like Scott to continue to make these kinds of purchases in this market during this month of the year? Very different question that requires a lot more data, a lot more compute, and a much bigger you know, business process around it. All I'm, where I'm going with this is, what is a blockchain once again? A blockchain is a transactional database. It's a database that's tamper-proof with very limited storage, but a tamper-proof way to com uh, commit transactions. When you commit a transaction to the blockchain, that's like, that's sovereign, right? And no, no one's going to tamper with that. No one's going to go remove that transaction later and delete that line of data from the, from the distributed ledger. They, they can try and the cons you know, Byzantine consensus will fail them. So in the data warehousing space, we have to think about similar challenges of how do we use similar kinds of technology like blockchain concepts and blockchain consensus driven technology to commit transactions and have transaction finality inside of a data warehouse that isn't a true blockchain. Why? Because it's not a single distributed ledger. It's a bunch of distributed ledgers. It's tons of tables. It's hundreds of terabytes and the data is coming in fast, baby. We're talking Solana speeds times 10, right? Solana speeds times, what if you, what if, what if you had Solana speeds times like 5,000 tables, 5,000 distributed ledgers, 5,000 Solanas. You, 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 you could take that kind of Solana consensus mechanism, but you'd have to scale it in a unique way. What I'm talking about is next generation technology to handle these large enterprise scale streams of data, these large volumes of data from all the major chains, from Solana and all the EVM chains and more chains like SWE and new stuff on the, on the come up but also store all this data from all these video games, all this off-chain data, and, and come to consensus on it in unique ways. I think our approach is unique. I think our approach is gonna be hopefully world-changing, but it's also ambitious. It's a, it's a big project. Yeah, there's, definitely, there's definitely no doubt about that. One, one thing that we've talked about a lot through the lens of mostly Qantas Airlines, um, I do sincerely hope that they come on as a client one day, that that you guys are enabling a lot of these sort of advanced analytics through proof of SQL. Now, what what we see at the moment with things like June Analytics is that you can create very very robust insights if you have a knowledge of SQL, a decent knowledge of SQL. Do you envision a way that space and time can sort of improve the accessibility of creating those insights, possibly like a like a, a, a lower code version of SQLs to run those queries and analytics? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I love Dune. I think Dune pioneered this idea of like a, it's a terrible way to describe it, but like a, a Reddit, uh, vote up, vote down, you know, like um, publish most popular trending hot dashboards. I love that. I think SQL is prevalent to your point probably need some no code, no SQL way to, to analyze this data. We're working on it. We're building a pretty cool user experience, but it's going to take a while, right? There's a space and time is already a pretty ambitious project on the back end. You know, the core data warehousing technology that we're building takes a lot of engineers. Today we have about 45, tomorrow we might have 80. Adding a user experience on top of that, where people can analyze data without code, without SQL is another challenge. 
and we're taking it on, but we're taking it on in steps, right? I don't think that will be available to the market for a while. I can, I can give you some ideas though, right? New financial instruments could be created with drag and drop access to data from the major chains. If I have access to top 10 play to earn games by monthly users, could I maybe create in a new financial instrument that tracks that on chain? Wink, wink. <laughs> and could I do that with drag and drop? Do I need SQL to do that? Do I need code to do that? Probably not. So we're working on some cool stuff. I knew, I knew we'd get at least some alpha out of you, Scott. Thank you for that. I guess the, ne the next thing is, right, you guys are obviously, as you've mentioned, taking on quite an ambitious chunk of the stack. Is there any tool sort of adjacent to what you guys are building that you wish existed to sort of make your experience easier? Or what, what, do, what do you think isn't there on the stack that you do wish was there for you guys? There's a lot. You're asking the tough questions today. <laughs> My uh, apologies. Yeah, we're, we're, we're half into incubate. We have to incubate quite a number, a large number of primitives. Primitives around combining transactions and analytics together in the same cluster. Primitives around libraries for cryptography. Primitives around a GPU exec execution framework to make those cryptographic proofs run faster in space and time and not take like another, you know, no one wants to ask a question and then wait another 10 seconds for a proof to be generated of that question, right? Or a proof to be verified even worse. So there's just a lot of primitives that we wish we had that we kind of have to build ourselves from scratch because this is all brand new space, man. Like the, the blockchain data space is kind of untouched right now. There's cool startups like, like Quill doing some things in this space, but even they're pretty early, right? We're all pretty early in this space. We all have a lot of work to do to get to a, Paul, fully scaled out decentralized network. Um, some primitives that I kind of wish existed were, uh, you know, better ways to be interoperable with all the major chains. Chainlink's working on things like CCIP, cross-chain interoperability protocol, which I'm really excited for, but that's not quite public. You know, it's not quite mainnetted yet, right? Primitives around GPU execution that don't exist. I really wish there was an open source hybrid transactional analytic database that we could use because uh, we're building our own and it's a ton of work. It's 35 engineers working on that right now. Well, sorry, about 28 engineers working on just that. It'd be nice if we didn't have to work build that ourselves so we could just leverage something from the open source world and instead focus more on the blockchains themselves and not on actually building a new database. It's a long answer to a short question. Thank, thank you for tackling it. I, I, know, I know it wasn't the easiest, so I might, I might scale back a bit from now. Um, one, one thing that I'm always fascinated to hear about from Web3 founders is how you balance, obviously the, the easiest clients for you to onboard will be dApps and those already building in sort of the decentralized Web3 world. How do you go or how do you view sort of if space and time has a responsibility to onboard non-Web3 clients um, to use your data warehousing or sort of what's the progression um, in, in that sort of sales sense? Yeah, we're really excited. We're talking to a number, a number of enterprises that are moving into the blockchain space, enterprises that are doing things similar to what I described with Qantas. And I'm not talking about airlines. I'm talking about enterprises, Fortune 500 companies that want to do settlement on the blockchain or mint some kind of item, some kind of purchase as an NFT. You can think about like all the retail use cases where you buy, you buy something through a dApp 
it sends an NFT to your wallet that, or mints an NFT to your wallet that represents your purchase and then settlement on the blockchain to pay out a bunch of third parties. Let me give a quick example. Like I'm, this is a example that I'm making up. We are not talking to the NFL, the, the, the enterprises that we're talking to. I don't want to, uh, you know, it's yeah. not something I can say on a podcast, but for example, the national football league, they could, you know, mint tickets to games as an, as an NFT and then third-party payouts to the marketing companies, the arena owners, anyone else could, could happen on the blockchain afterwards. But enabling that requires kind of a lot of data, a lot of data that today sits in centralized black boxes. But we have to get that data out of those centralized systems into something trustless and decentralized like space and time, and then build dApps on top of it to sell those tickets. Um, so there's some really cool use cases that we're talking to some enterprises about that we're excited. Um, from, from a banking standpoint, there's centralized banks that are looking at uh, kind of wire transfers and um, kind of HC, ACH SWIFT style transfers over the blockchain and then all the, the fraud analytics and AML that has to be associated with that, anti-money laundering that has to be associated with that, all requires capturing a lot of data from the chains processing that, running analytics on it and doing really complex work that ultimately could be provided back to a smart contract in order to make better decisions. If I send money to you via a smart contract and that smart contract says, wait, before this transfer, let me check this anti-money money laundering system that's trustless and decentralized and also part of the blockchain ecosystem. Uh, it creates problems but it also creates cool opportunities. We're talking to some large financials, large fintech that are doing some of these cool, you know, bringing some of these challenges to the chain. We're talking to some large enterprises that want to build NFT related settlement systems on chain as well. Yeah, nice. Um, I guess sort of outside of space and time, what is it that's fascinating you across Web3 at the moment? And obviously because you cover such a broad spectrum, uh, it's hard to say yeah. outside of space and time, but it's, it's hard to keep up. We, I'm trying. There's so much going on so much in the DeFi. There's so much innovation in the DeFi space. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just talk about some of the startups that I'm excited about. I chatted, chatted with some gentlemen at Primex, which is a, um, Stratos backed, uh, DeFi protocol that does trader risk analytics to understand how risky is a trader and how risky is the trade they're about to make and offer them margin and lending appropriately. So if I'm about to make a very risky trade and I have a history of very risky trades, maybe I don't get as much margin as someone else that's just trying to transfer USDC to Ethereum. Um, so the, 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 those are primitives that could open up a whole new set of use cases for Web3. Like I would love to see, uh, you know, margin trading on chain become a little more prevalent. Right now it's like a lot of flash loan related things and, and leveraged, leveraged financial instruments, but not like true margin trading. Um, there's a, so there's a bunch of DeFi primitives in the perpetual futures world, uh, companies like Baekdu out of Korea that are building like fully decenter, fully decentralized next generation perpetual futures. And there's this whole world of financial instruments that I'm trying to keep up with that changes every month. Uh, video game side, there's some really dope AAA games coming out at the end of the year and in Q1 and in Q2 next year, like back-to-back -back releases of awesome games, like games that are AAA that I'm really excited about where, you know, all of the assets in the game are NFTs, your weapons an NFT, your skins an NFT, even the map is an NFT and they can be created by the community. I'm super excited. Um, finally, 
I'm really excited about new chains. There's a couple uh, new blockchains on the come up. Side chains, L2s and L1s that are uh, starting to get some traction. And I don't think they'll ever be competitors to Ethereum, but they, they offer unique use cases that Ethereum does. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, might get into a bit of quick fire stuff uh, to finish. Lighten your load, explaining some of these tougher concepts. You could live with only one of video games, books, or movies for the rest of your life. What are you taking? Oh, movies, dude. I'm a, I'm a film nerd. Read a lot of screenplays. I love sci-fi murder mysteries, psych thrillers. Dude, if you if you build a database all day and then you're done building a database and then you read about new DeFi protocols and then you're done with that, the last thing you want to do is read a book. Yeah. <laughs> you want to just watch a movie. You just want to chill, watch a movie, maybe play some Halo or something. I don't know, man. Good so, question. So book, books are a long way last in your in your, in your your perspective? Hell no. No books. Yeah. <laughs> Get them out of here. White paper, crypto white papers, network, decentralized network white papers only, no books. <laughs> what you should have asked is if you could do video game, movie, book, or white papers from new blockchains, that's, that's the real question. <laughs> That's the truth. That's, that should be the test of any Web3 founder. Answer that correctly and, and we'll, we'll invest in your project. <laughs> this is the future. This is what Web3 enables. Um, and then so from on, on the back of that, do you have a particularly unpopular movie recommendation that you really love? Oh, dude, too many. I'll only give one just to keep it, keep it quick. There's a movie called Primer, won Sundance Grand Jury Prize. Uh, very esoteric, unheard of film. But if you like sci-fi and you like movies that make you think, it's the best out there. There's a reason it won Sundance Grand Jury Prize. It's incredible. It's a slow start, but get through it and you'll be glad you did. Interesting. Okay, I've, I've, I've it's called Primer. It. Primer. Primer, awesome. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll include it in the show notes. Sounds fascinating. And then finally, my, my favorite, and uh, apologies if you didn't see the question. Um, do you have a favorite piece of trivia? Hmm. Favorite piece of trivia. Yeah. Grew up in South Dakota, totally random, most random state in America. Uh, people don't realize there are tens of millions of buffalo in South Dakota. Who would have thought? Very well done on your feet. Thanks for that, Scott. Thanks so much for coming on and Qantas for unofficially supporting the episode. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Scott, uh, and really awesome learning about space and time. Uh, hopefully the audience uh, got a lot out of it and look forward to seeing you around again soon. Look, hey, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the day. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to that latest episode of Hands' Protocol Weekly. I deeply hope you enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date with our podcast every week, follow The Firm or myself on Twitter at Hands underscore network or at AHR Whitford. Even better, uh, if you're a best case scenario where this episode has motivated you to start your own protocol, I'd recommend heading to our website at hansa.network and reaching out to the Accelerator Investments team through our founder forms there. I've been your host, Archie Whitford. Thanks for tuning in and look forward to next time.